This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, everyone. My name is Natalie. I am a second year MBA student and a teaching assistant for Professor Stephanie Curry's course, Leading Diversity in Organizations. And I'm really excited to welcome you to the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Our moderator, Dr. Stephanie Curry, is a assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Professor Curry is an organizational scholar and her research focuses on the identity and diversity work that individuals and leaders engage in to promote inclusion and improve the quality of relationships across differences at work. As many of you know, Professor Curry teaches a course leading diversity in organizations to Wharton undergraduate and MBA students and is the creator of the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Today, she will moderate our discussion on trends in diversity analytics and data disclosure with three special guests. Our first guest is Matthew Bidwell. Professor Bidwell is an associate professor in Wharton's management department. His research examines new patterns in careers and employment, and his award-winning research has been published in a variety of top-tier academic journals and has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times. Professor Bidwell also teaches courses on people analytics and careers at Wharton and is a faculty director of the Wharton People Analytics Initiative. Our second guest is Carolyn L. Johnson. Carolyn is the Chief Executive Officer at Diversity Inc. Diversity Inc. is a data platform and media ecosystem known as the preeminent source of diversity management data and best practices. For 20 years, leading U.S. corporations have trusted Diversity Inc as a third party data transparency validator by participating in the annual top 50 survey. As an award-winning DEI thought leader, Carolyn is a strategic advisor to C-suite executives, government leaders, and major media outlets. And our third guest is Shuja Ahmad. He is an established strategic advisor to executive business and talent leadership. At LinkedIn, Shuja has built and been leading a team of people analytics mavericks passionate about building a future designed for equality and equity for all. His team is regarded as one of the pioneers in the space. In the unprecedented era of COVID-19 and recent events of systemic racial injustice, he has also been recognized for exemplary leadership by LinkedIn's executive leadership. Thank you so much, Natalie, for your introduction. And I wanna appreciate you for all the work that you've done to helping to bring together tonight's speaker event. Uh, thank you also to Matthew, Carolyn, and Shajat for joining us. Uh, we're so grateful to have you. I'm grateful to have you. I, I've known each of you in different contexts um, for a number of years, and it's exciting to have you here on this topic. I, I had said earlier when we were talking before we started our conversation that this is like my dream team of experts to engage with in conversation about the intersection of diversity and people analytics, where we've been where we are now and where we still have yet to go. So I'm, I'm excited to bring your thought leadership um, in this space to our audience today and looking forward to learning from you. So, so let's jump in. And I wanna jump in by just getting us focused on the history of this conversation, this space around diversity analytics. And I'm gonna start with you, Carolyn, because I think the work, no, I know the work that you've been doing at uh, Diversity Inc. has really led uh, a lot of practices that many leading blue chip companies have put in place as a way of understanding their workforce um, and beginning to hold themselves accountable 
to creating productive and more equitable change for all. Mm -hmm. So can you help us to understand um, the thinking behind the practice of diversity analytics, how that's evolved? And perhaps I also like to think about the context as being important. I always think about the context as being important. Is So what would you say are some key events or forces in, in the broader context, whether that be society or more close to the organization, that perhaps might have shifted this the way that the conversation about diversity analytics has evolved? So Stephanie, first, thank you for having me back. I am, um, although I am worn out from this past week with everything going on with Thanksgiving and birthdays and all that other stuff, um, I wouldn't have missed this uh, panel for the world. So um, thank you for inviting me back. Um, and uh, Natalie and Tracy, thank you for everything that you've done to get us organized and here. Um, so Stephanie, to answer or to start to answer your question, because we could talk about this forever. Um, <laughs> to, to answer your question, it's a combination, but it always hasn't been seen as such where it's, it's organization, like internal organizational issues that are impacted by societal issues, but organizations are finally getting to a place of, of realizing that. And so what do I mean by that? Um, when we think about women's suffrage, that was the first time that people really wanted to in the US, and I will focus my comments on the US because that's the survey data that we look at. Um, that's where we started to care about that one uh, dimension of diversity that is still most prevalent and most important prominent right now, which is gender. So how are women contributing? What are their issues? Um, that was the, 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 the gender concerns. And then it was civil rights. And then it became affirmative action. And then it became um, multiculturalism. And then it became diversity. And then it became diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then it became, it, listen, we're going to call it something else in a week. Um, <laughs> but the reality of it is it's about making sure that people have an equal opportunity to compete and win um, and the resources to do so. So that's really what it is. And as far as what we're measuring, um, we started out with gender, then we went from gender to looking at gender and ethnicity, um, and then with the government requiring uh, their their major their their um, primes to do um, EEO one reports, um, gender and ethnicity was really um, the area of focus. Our survey, however, looks at six areas. Um, one is human capital diversity metrics, um, and it's not just overall workforce. We look at levels of management. Uh, level one being the U.S. leader CEO and their direct reports, two, their direct reports, three, their direct reports, and you guys don't know where I'm going with this. Um, we look at top 10% highest paid. We look at turnover, both voluntary and involuntary. These are going to be the, the um, indicators that help us understand how well an organization is doing or how far they have to go. Um, so that's one area we look at. We look at talent development. So once, you, when, when, once you've identified you know, your workforce type, who are you recruiting? Where are you recruiting them from? How are you bringing them through the pipeline? How are you developing them? Uh, we also look at supplier diversity. I think of human capital diversity metrics and supplier diversity as the bookends to an effective diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging program because we had a belonging, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we also look at uh, philanthropy and leadership accountability and workplace practices. So this is not just, um, I believe the phrase is counting heads. This is looking at the total uh, programming um, and strategy around making sure that people, no matter who they are, no matter their dimension, orientation, um, differently abled, uh, veteran status, gender, um, uh, identity, we make sure that we're looking at all of the ways in which an organization can help their people thrive.
Thank you, Carolyn. Matthew, I'm going to go to you next. And, uh, you know, Matthew, as my uh, academic colleague, I wonder if you have a perspective first on thinking about how we do our research is done, right? And, and this idea of diversity becoming increasingly um, in, of interest in many of the journals in which you and I publish. But I also want to acknowledge your role as a co-faculty director of the Wharton People Analytics Initiative. I know that in the four years that I've been at Wharton, I've seen an increasing amount of content and engagement um, at the intersection of people analytics and diversity. So definitely want to give you the same question about the evolution, but I also want to give a nod to perhaps you've also seen this evolution more broadly in academia in addition to practice, which is what we're also talking about. Great. Yeah. Um, thank you. And yeah, thank you everybody for setting this up. I'm slightly intimidated following um, Carolyn's tour de force, kind of, you know, how it all works. Um, it's great. Um, I mean, I think the academic perspective tracks that to um, some degree. Um, I think if I look at the changes that have happened, say, over the last 10 to 15 years, um, I think one change has been the dimensions of diversity that we focus on. And I think this really echoes what we've seen um, corporate. You know, I think years 15 ago to about five years ago when you looked at what was actually being published on diversity I would say 80 to 90 percent of it was on gender diversity um and I think that reflected where people's interests were I think it also probably to some extent reflected um kind of the ability to get data I think now we are seeing a much more substantial shift it, there's always been some good work on racial diversity but I think the um I think the level of interest in it has rightly gone up substantially. I think in the way that, and this gets back to um, what Carolyn was saying about kind of the language we use keeps changing. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, it's hard to keep up. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, that does also track our increasingly complex understanding of the problem. And I think that is also something that we see in the academic literature. You know, probably, like I said, I think the literature on gender is better developed. There just has been a lot more of it. Um, and there, I think what you've seen is the shift from kind of a focus on understanding outright discrimination and kind of which, which occurs um, to a more complex understanding around, well, we definitely see problems of discrimination, but if you look at the outcomes that people are experiencing, you have to go a lot deeper than that because there's also the way that organizations shape the attractiveness of various different roles, shape how people feel. You know, all of these inclusion things, I think, have become a lot more important um, there and how we make that work. And so I think there's more attention to this kind of interaction between individual choices and what organizations do than they used to be. Um, you know, I think I would say kind of just also, I mean, my read of the literature is we talk about diversity as a single thing. Um, if you want to talk about, say, diversity issues when it comes to gender and race, there are points of commonality. I think there are tremendous differences as well. And so I hope we're getting a little bit more sensitive um, around that. And then obviously there's the intersectional kind of, you can't even just say these are different problems, but, but they intersect. Yeah. in various different ways. Um, finally, kind of just very briefly, your question about analytics and, um, you know, the role of diversity. 
I mean, it's interesting teaching people analytics. You know, every topic that we talk about, everyone wants to ask, what's the um, diversity implication of this? I think 90% of the time people see analytics as the enemy of diversity. Um, I think 90% of the time, as soon as you start talking about analytics and, you know, because we can use it to make decisions about how we hire, about who we promote, all of those sorts of things. And I think everybody's terrified that what this is going to do is encode biases that we already have and perpetuate them. That's clearly a big concern. Um, but, um, you know, I do hope that more of the conversation will start to be around. Yet yeah, we want to be absolutely worried about that, but we also want to think about how we can use analytics actually to understand the problem better so we can start to solve it. So Matthew, the point that you were making about treating gender and race differently, because we know these are different phenomenon, I will have to say when I submitted one of my first academic papers, you know, more than 10 years ago, um, I remember getting my reviews back from, you know, through the blind review process where someone said, I think you should just call them all minorities because isn't this really just about being in the minority? And then I just got some reviews back this weekend on a paper that I, I have data around gender and data around race. And I have much more data around race than gender. And the reviewers unanimously said, I think you should take out the gender data because it's not the experience of gender is not the same as the experience of race. And that's 10 years later. So I can't even imagine what it looked like if we go back 20 years or 30 years. So I guess to amplify what you're saying is there's an evolution happening everywhere, including in academia and the review process where we're starting to understand that we do acknowledging the differences and the differences based on our minority categories is, is really important. And certainly, as you said, about the intersections being important as well. Shajad, I want to turn to you because what I've um, loved in the time that we've gotten to know each other is, uh, well, first of all, you're a Wharton grad, so we always love that. Um, but I think the second piece is, is that you're like in the forefront of taking one of these professional roles in the space of people analytics. I don't know if it was called people analytics before you took this role, but you've been riding the wave with the wave of the movement and in seeing these two conversations around people analytics, the one that Matthew's laid out for us and the conversation that Carolyn is having around diversity coming together. And you have a job where you're trying to bring these two together in ways that help your company, LinkedIn, at least from my perspective, understand how to do uh, better uh, by its workforce and with its workforce. So can you talk a little bit about this role <laughs> that you have and, and how you've seen this evolution, maybe just in, in the work that you're doing over the past few years? Yeah, perfect. Well, first of all, uh, this group, uh, this, so quickly about me, I'm, I'm part of the people analytics team at LinkedIn. You know, so when I, just like Stephanie pointed out, when we started also people analytics for me as well, I was a radical pivot and it was a means to an end. The end goal was how do we get at the, the table where we can talk about making good with employees and talent that will be a multiplier effect from a social impact perspective, from diversity. And that was like my true north. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do we actually help them understand that you could do good with talent, you do good for businesses. But knowing that where how Caroline uh, explained it as well, diversity alone, if you just go in that field, I was not sure how much influence would that create. So, and people analytics was just in early days of being built, it was very nascent, still nascent now. Mm -hmm. So my main role has been in people analytics where we report directly and serve directly our executive suite to help them make any talent decision based on evidence, minimize bias as much as we can. And through the process, help people understand how they can be more strategic and talent decisions. 
And in that, sitting in that role, diversity was one of the portfolio that was just rising up. This is back in 2017. So having my own passion in there is my hand and sort of like start, how, do, how can we influence this? Help support the work of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, but also help move the needle. So bridging the analytics and bridging the, you know, the lack of better term, the fluffy aspect that all my MBA fellows used to call. Like, so you talk about the fluff here when you talk about diversity and talent. We're like, no, this can actually be quantified and you can bridge together. Mm-hmm. And how we've seen it evolve, and so I coach other teams as well around this in other companies, I would break it down in a very, in my own view, into four buckets. So I think there was this period of corporate response, which is just before 2016, 2017, where they had to respond to a PR or an ER concern, mostly with gender, and then it picked up with race. So any reporting was done mainly to show that we're doing something and there's a response to it, but the data foundations never existed. Mm-hmm. And then leading up to the pandemic, it went from response to responsibility mm-hmm. because as voices re- rose up, they knew they had to put something on paper as goals. Mm-hmm. And to start off with that, you have to realize, how do you identify people? Where do they sit? Um, you can, you know, you can turn a business down by 10% growth every year. That's not the case with diversity. A point one, a, a one percentage point increase maybe a big thing for an industry, right? So, but as soon as the pandemic hit and you see a mix of things happening, the civic activism that was happening as well, and you add on top of it, 18 months at least of people being virtual and they've had enough, they start becoming more vocal. Mm -hmm. It's gone from responsibility to realization, Mm -hmm. like across companies and realizing and being humble that it's not this easy. You can't just put up a metric of hiring or attrition and headcount there are so many factors involved in it. There are so many layers. And I think the systemic racism or systemic discrimination across any identity dimension got exposed. Yeah. I think that's where we are right now, mm-hmm. where we're headed. And it's not like each company has passed a chasm. They're all in different stages of this journey. Right? Mm-hmm. I think the one is going to be record, which is where this needs to go, is realizing that the same system that limits you on data is the same system that built workflows and processes to, you know, knowingly or unknowingly create discrimination. So you're trying to fight the same system. You have to actually recode and not be just limited about what data is available. Actually try to get to how do we get the evidence to make things move in, even, even with the lack of data and creating data ourselves. So that, that's, I think, where we are. Yeah, so certainly you, the three of you have just kicked us off in a very robust conversation. We're going to unpack all of that. Never fear to the audience. We're going to unpack all of that um, over the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Um, so I just want to dive into one aspect of what you were just saying, Shajat, because I think uh, there's something important that um, we all need to recognize um, when we're having this conversation about people, um, and that is the sensitivity of our personal data and issues around making our data and data about us um, readily available to people who want to draw conclusions about us, our trajectories, our experiences. And so I wanna invite us to have a conversation for a little bit about data, issues of data and data disclosure, because I I find sometimes that um, when I'm having conversations with people who want answers as to what works, Um, they forget that 
we're not looking at widgets, <laughs> right? And just measuring those and what happens today versus tomorrow. We're looking at people who have very real concerns around um, being treated fairly, equitably, losing their job, getting a job, um, and privacy. And then we're also acknowledging that issues around data, privacy, and data disclosure differ um, in the context. It differs, policies can differ across companies, but they can also fundamentally differ, and they do differ widely across countries. So I want to move us into that conversation about limits and opportunities around data disclosure. Matthew, I'm going to go to you first, because again, I see the parallels here with collecting data as an academic around diversity. And you started to say in, in your uh, opening was that some of the reflection of what we've seen being produced academically on the topic of diversity is a reflection of the data that we've had access to. But I would just love for you to, to um, elaborate a little bit more what you've seen change, perhaps for the better, maybe for the worse, with respect to issues of access to data, data disclosure, as it affects your various uh, initiatives. I mean, I think as, as academics, we face a problem that companies don't face when they um, look at their own data, which is we have to persuade companies to um, share data with us. And that can be complicated. So, I mean, the last, my experience has been over the last 10 years, companies have become more reluctant to share um, demographic data. So I've had in recent years, three or four companies have been reasonably comfortable sharing with me data on their workforce so I can see how people got paid, how they performed, how they moved through the organization. They're happy to do that as long as they scrub out race, gender, maybe age. Um, because if you are the company lawyer, you know, this agreement has to go through you. And the first question is, if we give this data to an academic, what could go wrong? Like, what, what's our worst case scenario? Mm -hmm. Our worst case scenario is we publish something saying, look, things seem deeply inequitable here. Because to be honest, most no organization does as well as they would like. And to Shujat's point, you know, I'm not saying organizations are evil. I'm saying they're operating in a society which is deeply rigged. And so there's very little that any, you know, any organization, it's incredibly tough to really you know, swim upstream in that. And so they are, I mean, I think there have been a number of academics who have been successful at um, getting this data, and I'm always impressed that they do. But just persuading people to share mm -hmm. that kind of data, I think, is tricky. I think beyond that, I mean, from the organization perspective, and Shujat and Carolyn can talk to this probably better than I can, but, but my impression is there's a slight kind of uncertainty principle-esque feeling to this, which is, you know, when it comes to most dimensions of diversity, they're socially constructed categories, right? And so you're asking people to classify themselves. And some of those classifications, particularly when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality, may feel even more intrusive to people about kind of what do I want to share? What do I want to say? And I think there is this kind of, the more that you do with the data, and the more you're going to use it to drive insights, potentially the more nervous they're going to be to share it with you. So if I throw out an entirely anonymous survey where people know this isn't going to be connected to anything, maybe I'll share a bunch of that data. 
once I start saying this is a data set and to make it useful, yeah, we're going to match it back to your personnel record so we can look at kind of different outcomes for different people. I'm starting to go, okay, so people are really going to know who I am. How do I feel about sharing this data? And so I do think, you know, there is also sometimes a problem, which is the more use we're going to make of that data, the more potentially reluctant people are to share it. And I think how we give them the confidence to feel, I'm trusting you with this data and you're going to deliver constructive insights and it's not going to cause problems for me. I think that can be a challenge. Absolutely. So John, I'm going to go back to you and then Carolyn will circle back to you to get for your perspective on this because you all collect data. Um, both in your respective um, spaces. Shajat, you're collecting your own company's data or in processing your own collect company's data. And Carolyn, you have lots of companies data. So interested to see how, how it's evolved for you. Shajat, you had started to tell us a little bit about that, um, perhaps hinting that it's not as easy as one would like to process data, analyze data on company employees. But tell us a little bit about, um, from your perspective, um, the data disclosure opportunities, but also concerns? Yeah, I will uh, say three things. So once so it started from the company side, right? It is like Matthew was saying that it's become more difficult for companies is because of liability issues. Because, you know, seasoned journalists in the hype cycle don't even get this right. You expect employees to look at an insight and make a very well-judged opinion on it and not to take photos and spread it across. Because uh, five, six years ago, not just us, other companies as well, they all wanted to share data with employees. And then what happens is it's going to take one person to misread a insight. And I think Saul uh, in the Q&A, Saul Gomez mentioned a good point. You know, you can read a data point and say, you know, 15% are X and 85% are Y. And someone can say, hey, you know what? Majority of an ethnicity is in that 15%. Hence, this company is doing bad for this 15%. And which may not be true. So from a liability perspective, just generally when you're analyzing diversity data, most legal departments won't even let you put an insight on it. It has very closed door, highly privileged and rightfully so because it can lead to issues and then everyone's learning after a rabbit hole from a PR perspective and you can't actually get work done. So, so there's limitations there of how much insight you can share with them. On the employee side, it all starts with trust, whether you're internal or external. So what we've done and we've pushed others as well is that, you know, so when you do an employee survey, right, that's where you're gathering a lot of sentiment data. First of all, you know, we put high confidentiality measures in there that if, for example, if I was looking at Matthew's team and Matthew's team has only uh, under five respondents, not even five people, mm -hmm. five respondents, he will not get to see anything. We will not get to see any score in Matthew because we don't want anyone to reverse engineer and figure out who said what? And at the same time, it is, you know, when you've done these surveys, how much action you've shown as a result of the findings that brought in trust from employees. Mm -hmm. And we've seen other companies that we've pushed now as well on this, we've done it well, is once you've built that trust, uh, look at response rates, right? Every business leader says, you know, there's survey fatigue. We've had like a high 80 to 90 response rate. That means people are finding value in it. Right? So, I think, so I think that's what you can do. The third one I was going to say is don't hide behind the limitations of the data. It is a rigged system that we're operating in, right? especially in the US. And then UK is just starting to open up on self-ID, but there's a lot of issues when you go globally. Is Do you need to know 100% exactly what's happening in a population? Or do you need to gather signals 
that direct you towards a focus group, towards something to figure out like what are the insights. Mm -hmm. And the problem with diversity has been that people have used a big data lens on a problem that is a small data problem. Mm -hmm. like I would, if, if I'm a thousand person company and there's only, let's say, 10 people from a certain ethnicity identified in the US, you're like, well, if one person leaves, there's a 10% attrition rate. Two leave, it's 20%. What do I do? And do I wait till I become 10,000? I think that's where you have to go beyond traditional analytics and go into more focused group, qualitative and quantitative studies to figure that out. So I think this is a great point. I'm just going to use myself um, as an example. I think about um, so I identify as a Black woman, African-American woman, and I can't tell you in the course of the various jobs that I've had in my career, how many times there's been uh, a survey asking about the experiences of Black professionals, wherever I've worked, or Black women professionals. And I'm like, that's dangerous, because there has never been at any place where I've ever worked a critical mass. Um, I think we fall most of the time into that N under five, which you were just mentioning, Shajat. And it's always hard because what the research tells us on this topic is that I am likely, and people who, who belong to my racial, my race and gender categories are more are, are less are more likely to have a less positive or more negative experience in the workplace. And I can always tell that people want to know, want me to confirm that for them. But that issue of trust, or are they going to know that I said it, and I'm, is my job going to be vulnerable, is, is always a very real issue for so many of us. And so I think about the times where I or my colleagues have participated in a focus group, because what we do in these focus groups is we ask all these questions <laughs> before we say anything is, how are you going to make sure that it doesn't come back that we, we said that, right? Um, and so I think that's also where focus groups are important because it establishes that human connection and it gives the people who you're trying to focus some energy on understanding their experiences. It gives them the chance to ask questions about all of their concerns about um, their data getting leaked to people who might not have good intents, right? So Carolyn, you have to think about this a lot um, at Diversity Inc. because you collect a lot of companies' data. And um, for uh, some of the research that we've done that Diversity Inc. has has, has played a, a wonderful role in, in helping us to connect with uh, companies on, um, you've created on your website this wonderfully rich uh, data privacy statement and data security statement that talks about how you manage and hold on to data. But yeah. can you talk a little bit about your experiences with data disclosure? I don't know if you're having the same experience that Matthew and myself as academics are having where people don't want to give us access to their data, but um, as much as they did in the past, but please share with us what's your perspective and your experience on this. Sure. So um, I, I think it would be helpful to talk about how long, right, um, yeah. we've been doing this. So um, we're going on 23 years of, 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 of producing uh, the Diversity Inc. Top 50 uh, Companies for Diversity Survey. Now, we don't just look at um, uh, publicly traded uh, companies. We look at um, privately held. We look at college universities. We look at um, any major U.S. employer that has 750 employees or more. So let's just start there. And so for 23 years, we have definitely seen um, a, an improved um, perspective as it relates to um, how being benchmarked can help you from a business perspective. So um, there, there are a couple of things, and I was looking down because my, my pen is on fire over here based on what, what, you, got, what you got and what Matthew said. Um, and, and so a couple of things are like, first of all, why, right? 
why are you doing this? Um, is, was it because you have a CEO who's like, well, wait a minute, um, we're not recruiting at the same rate that I know my peers are? Um, is it because you're seeing issues around retention? Is it a lawsuit? Um, is it because of ESG, environmental, social, and governance from an investor relations perspective? Um, is it about community relations? Is it about government relations? Issue here is, first and foremost, why are you doing this? Um, and then who, right? Who is it going to help by you disclosing this data? Um, well, if, you, if it's about retention and engagement, right, when we talk about these um, employee engagement surveys, um, where it's employee sentiment, of which our survey does not collect, we are, it's company submitted information. It is not about how an employee feels about their company right after, you know, uh, performance review <laughs> or, or, or some, that's not what this is. This is about what companies are doing around the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we also look at issues of what leaders need to know. So, um, you know, Matthew, I, I think this is something um, that you can appreciate, but data manipulation, when we benchmark, it is very interesting to me how people want to change our benchmarking reports to tell, a, to tell the story they want their leaders to hear and not what's actually happening. And that's why it comes all around full circle. Employees want to see this information for themselves because they want to know based on their dimension of diversity. And I know there was a question in the, in the chat about what are the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, as it relates to those voluntary data disclosures, and that is how we refer to it, we look at orientation, we look at um, uh, people who are differently abled, uh, and we look at veteran status. Those are going to be the uh, additional categories um, that are not necessarily something that um, a lot of companies are collecting during the onboarding process. So you'll see people disclose that, Shajat, to your point, once there's a, a relationship um, a feeling of trust and belonging that that information won't be held against you. So Stephanie, for me, it's really, why are you doing this? And do you have a relationship with your human resources information system to where they're partnering with you to make it easy so that you're not managing these very important data points in the spreadsheet? So there's a lot of things that contribute to um, the increase in companies that are able to get legal permission to submit and also how complete their submission can actually be. Thank you so much. So let me continue on this theme of company practices by diving more deeply into a conversation about company practices with respect to diversity analytics. I know in a corporate industry, a lot of the times um, the, the word best is used to describe the practices that um, are being used. Um, as an academic, we make no note of whether company practices are good or bad or in between, though we do note them. And, and so just wanna give you a little bit of background on this to dive into our conversation about what you're noticing with respect to the, the companies you're studying, you're part of, right, you're working with. Um, so over the last, and Carolyn and Shajat are very familiar with this, over the last more than three years, my colleagues at Wharton and I um, embarked on a project focused on understanding uh, what works, if you will, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion practices. And we started by trying to understand what are the diversity, equity, inclusion practices, internally focused, talent focused per, uh, practices that the average company um, puts in place. Um, and then we were interested in understanding and what do they do? Because what we have learned in combing a lot of the literature, whether we're looking at academic literature or corporate literature on this topic is there's some sense, and, and certainly from the interviews that we did with leaders in this space um, several years ago was a lot of the success of people's work 
companies work has been measured by how many things are we doing and not by are those things actually changing Carolyn's experience as somebody who works here and what does that do? And so what's interesting about that is when Matthew, when I think about who we are as academics, we're fundamentally set up to understand the relationships between practices and outcomes. But what I've learned in, in probing more deeply into how diversity success is being measured, what we, what we found in our research was that either headcount people in, people out, people staying, people going, um, or we're doing all the things that our peers or our competitors are doing. So surely something must be good. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that this and more is in a report that's available on the Wharton website. Um, it's called Improving Workplace Culture Through Evidence-Based Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Practices. For anybody who's interested in hearing about this, we um, released it in May 2021. But I just want to use that as an entry into a conversation about what companies are measuring and what they're fundamentally understanding and not understanding right now. And so clearly, so much of the work around measurements and metrics in the practice of diversity in, uh, analytics has been about headcount and tracking the comings and goings of people. And we know historically in the US, that's because you, you had talked about the EEO-1, you'd mentioned that that's the form that you have to fill out as a company that's a federal contractor to report to the um, federal government what's happening with groups that are historically marginalized, right? So there's a reason for why that's a dominant a set of metrics and a dominant set of practices. And I think as an academic, when we used to be able to collect data more easily and use access company data, they were already collecting that headcount data. So that's been around the longest. So have you seen this evolve where companies are tracking other DEI related metrics? Shajat either at LinkedIn, I'm gonna start with you in just a second. So that's your, your cue. Um, or are talking about doing something more than assessing headcount, particularly because people are asking questions about inclusion and equity, and we all know that headcount doesn't necessarily give us the direct insights that we want to have on that topic. So, Shadat, how have you seen this evolve, if at all? Where would you like to see this go with respect to metrics? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start off where it is right now, right? So, uh, so I think there is... A most companies have at the very basic level, this is headcount data, you know, hiring, attrition, your headcount by different levels. And, and I think uh, while that's on the people's side, uh, there's been more deeper, even at the basic level, I would say there's a deeper level on the people's side, which is around sentiment. So you have your employee engagement surveys that happen. And in there, you can ask, so at LinkedIn, for example, we don't call it DEI, we call it DIVS, so diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And we have certain questions that are consistently asked that relate more to inclusion, mm -hmm. right? And belonging aspects uh, without actually calling them out that way so that, you know, we're not sort of gaming the survey to get to an answer. Mm -hmm. And in there, you can then study uh, across the company, different populations, the differences of experiences. And obviously during the pandemic, as employee experience got on fire in every company mm -hmm. and everyone went virtual and trying to figure this out, we went and did even more frequent surveys to focus on that employee experience part. Mm -hmm. Now, I still call that as the basic layer because um, the basic layer, you know, where this space is, uh, where the why of diversity may not be fully understood across companies and executives, uh, even that basic layer is pretty powerful. 
Mm-hmm. And when you look at headcount data, hiring data, that itself, if you want to dig deeper, for instance, uh, what does your recruiting funnel look like? Mm-hmm. Right? What are the sourcing channels? Are there which one's more leading to diverse candidate, which one is not? Uh, where are you hiring from? Right? This is all very high level data, some publicly available as well from the market, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and some inside as well. The basic level. I think the deeper level is uh, is behavioral data. Mm-hmm. I think what exactly you and Matthew were talking about as part of the diversity Inc. report mm-hmm. is, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. So every engagement survey in every company asks the question, um, Carolyn, how do you feel? Right? So it's all about a point in time about how you feel. Right? Um, that's it. Now, you could be the happiest person in the company. You may not be the most highest performing team in the company. Right? Because outcomes are linked with behaviors mm-hmm. in a company. And those underlying behaviors are based on values that a company operates on and the culture is built on. So something we tested out, we called it the culture survey. We flipped the question. Rather than asking Carolyn, Matthew, Stephanie, how you're feeling, we're saying, Carolyn, do you observe around you this behavior? Mm. The behaviors were tied with very specific values that we felt if we could fine tune them, we could actually change the culture and drive to a better outcome. That gives you a better idea of across the board, the on the ground behaviors you're seeing. And that's the second layer that we're seeing. You can get that through focus groups as well, but by asking the entire company, and we do that very regularly, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give this very short anecdote on this. When we did that the first time, one of the values very core to a company like LinkedIn is innovation, is take intelligent risk. And we found that people rated that, you know, not as high compared to other values it was a big shocker to our executives. And what that turned into next day, our company connect, our town hall happens every two, every two weeks. Our executives realized that the, we showed them a text analysis of the words they had used over the last two years. Mm-hmm. We had also compared the words used in job description of companies we compare ourselves against. And we showed them how they're actually also alienating certain audiences. Mm. That immediate impact was them changing their language of how to help recognize what values matter most. Mm-hmm. Similarly, around diversity, inclusion, belonging. How do you recognize it? How do you talk about it? Uh, and we felt that has resonated the most with people. But, but that's an example of going deeper, understanding behaviors, then linking those behaviors to what behaviors could be causing a certain sentiment of how Carolyn is feeling, how Matthew is feeling. Uh, and then being able to give very actionable recommendations to the Achilles heel of all of this, managers. There's a single point of failure and success. Mm-hmm. So the more you can give them that these are the few behaviors your team and you need to run, it will have an impact on sentiment. That's a level. That's where I've seen companies do that. Not everyone's there. Uh, and, but I think it's also another way of getting away from the organizational representation data to actually asking your audience uh, and driving outcome for that. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Shajat. Carolyn, what do you think about this as you're, I love how you put this, Shajat, you talked about, um, you know, behavioral data outcomes are linked with behaviors and, and asking the question in a way that asks employees, in your case, um, to think about the behaviors that they see and then helping your executives to see that the behaviors that they want to see 
you're not exhibiting <laughs> as information if you actually want to be able to uh, drive their experience in a more positive direction. Now, again, Carolyn, you talked about the fact that you don't collect employee level data, but you do collect a lot of data on company practices. How are you thinking about the practices in relation to outcomes? What is your what are, what are you currently understanding from the work that you're doing and what would you like to see in the future from the work that you're doing? Right. So, so Stephanie, trying to marry the question that you're asking me with what we're seeing in the chat, because I know we're bumping mm -hmm. up on time here. Um, I, I really do think about it. Um, it's not something that we see just because of industry or location or company size. Um, but I really do see in the data that it's based on the maturity level, based on uh, Deloitte's maturity model of how long a company has been doing this work. Um, how long they have been making sure that they are releasing certain data externally or looking for external validation uh, of, of, the, of what they've been doing. So when we talk about programs, is it you're checking the box saying that you have, if we're going to talk about a practice, for example, saying that you have a, an employee resource group for, and then, you know, the different dimensions of diversity, or is it a program that is actually helping people. So is it, is it check the box or is it a quality driven focused leadership supported program? Um, and then there, there's also um, the importance of external benchmarking, right? Because you have to know what's possible in order to figure out where to start. So when we think about, you know, pay inequality, and I think about Hershey and um, that company has actually um, been able to um, have no pay gap. So U.S. salary women Blacks, um, Latinx, and Asian American Pacific Islander employees earn dollar for double compared to white men at that aggregate level. This is the type of information that people need to understand at a company level to know what's possible. So yes, um, you needed to understand that women did have an issue with, you know, not feeling like they had to hurry up and wait their turn. That's where the employee, you know, sentiment data is going to come in. But you still need to understand that oh, we can't do that is not an answer because there are companies out there that are doing this work and that are winning and are knocking down those barriers for everybody, not just the people that they like or the people that they play golf with. Absolutely. Matthew, what are your thoughts on this as you're considering uh, the link? And, and again, I sort of you know set it up by understanding that so much of the work that we do as academics is about explaining mm -hmm. um, what happens and why it happens. And Certainly, as you have your own work on working with people from the people analytics community and teaching our students and all your other engagements, I'm wondering how you're thinking about how they're analyzing their data and drawing conclusions versus how we as academics are taught to think about data analysis and interpretation and, you know, theory, contribution to knowledge. You know, I, I don't think the difference is... Uh... Are that substantial um you know i think yeah everybody is looking at similar kinds of data um i would say one thing that's changed a lot i think over the last yeah, again 10 years probably um among corporations is the sophistication of the um people analytics teams um so these days they tend to be people with phds probably more computer scientists and social scientists often but um a big mix probably slightly less emphasis on explanation and slightly more emphasis on just understanding kind of where are the gaps. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think this kind of question about what kind of data people look at, I, I like headcount data. Um, I like <laughs> that kind of basic mobility data, 
One of the challenges that you have, I think, is there are some numbers that are meaningful across contexts. So who gets promoted, who leaves, how much people get paid. We can look at that anywhere and see similar things. Once you're starting to get to behaviors and even sentiments, they start to get increasingly contextual. And it's interesting looking at some of the things in the Q&A about, well, isn't it qualitative? And, you know, at some point, everybody's experience of belonging stuff, it's so personal to them, right? And then we're trying to aggregate over these vast numbers and kind of squish that down into a number. Mm -hmm. People get kind of, in a sense, less comfortable with doing that. So I think in one of the challenges we have in analytics throughout is we're trying to get all this rich experience and, and distill it into these tiny numbers. And that's always going to make people a little nervous. Absolutely. Stephanie, can I just say one thing? Absolutely. Um, Matthew, I agree with you 100% because you have to start with being comfortable being measured, right? You have to start there. And so looking at where there are obvious disparities is that first step. So if you just look at your leadership team, if a majority of your customers are, you know, women, but you have no women on your leadership team, well, then that's a problem, isn't it? And we don't necessarily need an employee engagement survey or a consultant to tell us that. As leaders, that's just obvious. And so when we talk about all the programs, well, are, are, are they, are, are, is the participation equitable? Are the ratios on point? Workforce to management, when people are being identified as high potential, are, is it a whole, is it, and, and by the way, there's a, a comment in the chat Mm -hmm. um, if I worked at Black Enterprise and everybody at Black Enterprise is Black, well, then guess what? <laughs> black people are the majority. So it, it's not just a white versus Black, men versus women. You've got to look at the organization. You've got to understand the makeup of the organization, that culture, and deal with it there. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But if, if it's not fair, if the resources aren't equally distributed, then you have a problem. And it doesn't matter how people feel if you don't recognize and realize what the problem is. So you all have done a fabulous job of either knowing this or not knowing this, addressing a lot of the questions that are coming into the chat. So I've been trying to think about some of the themes here um, during uh, that we can perhaps tackle um, with our remaining time. So there's still a lot of questions. There are still a lot of questions around how do we overcome the challenges? That's the question about everything, right? So how do we overcome the challenges around limitations of access to data? How do we overcome the challenges around people who don't um, have maybe the highest level of aptitude for interpreting the data, misinterpreting the data? How do we overcome the challenges around the fact that outside of the US, we use different categories? and are we perhaps at LinkedIn thinking about those other categories? So there's all these things about overcoming the challenge. I do wanna give you what I thought one person submitted as an answer to some of these challenges. It's certainly the one that I've used extensively, which is why I have a relationship with Carolyn and, and, a, and a relationship with Shajat. And somebody posed a, a question, but I think it was an answer. How can academics and people in corporate industry work together to overcome some of these challenges. So I'm just gonna put that out there. You do not have to answer the question with that as a collaboration, but I thought that was insightful around this broader sets of questions around, okay, we know all the challenges that exist. What are some things that you've seen work that have made it easier um, than when they weren't in place? 
And so, uh, Matthew, let me actually start with you on this one. Um, wow, how do we solve these challenges? Well, in three minutes, I'll answer every question. I, yes. I mean, I mean, from my perspective, these, like like I said, I think analytics has a part to play here. Um, you know, all the problems that we're talking about, about companies not wanting to share their data, about employees being uncomfortable sharing their data with organizations, all of these, you know, we have some very deep socio-political problems around um around diversity uh, and it and so it's very hard I think kind of we're seeing these manifest through kind of even how we talk about the data how we interpret the data and so on so I don't think there is kind of a unique analytic um, solution to this I think in terms of the question of um, working together I mean obviously there is a lot of scope for that um, as academics we like companies because they have the data we want to know what's actually going on in the world. And to do that, we have to work with people who are out there. Um, I think for, um, I mean, for companies, there is the opportunity. I mean, partly we bring in new perspectives. I think the other thing that we really bring in is the opportunity to kind of bridge across companies. Um, and so hopefully the, the value proposition is there. I think there's, there's a lot more work to do as long as we just steer clear of the lawyers. Okay, so Matthew, I have to ask you this follow-up question. Um, it's a correlation versus causation question. And who better to ask than the academic who teaches a course on people analysts? So I'm sure you get this question asked. Um, but I just want to make sure that I ask this because how, how important is that in this work that we're doing with respect to diversity data to understand the difference between correlation and causation? And is one better, which is usually the way that the question is asked? Um. Yeah, again, you want this in a minute. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, we do care about causation because when you're talking about how do we solve a problem, solving a problem means understanding how it's caused so we can change the pathway that leads to it. So we worry a lot about causation. The risk is it can get you to a very nihilistic place when it comes to analytics, which is we can almost, what we see are correlations, right? And particularly with diversity, you know, are we going to be allowed to do the big experiments that we want? God, no, we probably wouldn't get it through our ethics board, let alone persuade um, a company to do it. And so the problem is what we have are correlations, what we would like to know is causations. We have to, I mean, I, I had a speaker to my people analytics class, kind of saying, look, in people analytics, none of the analyses you do are dispositive. Like, it's not like you absolutely generally nail a question, but what you do is you start to narrow down this. We thought this could be a cause. Having done this analysis, it is much more likely that this is a cause than some of the other causes. And so that's where I stand with this. We're never going to get perfectly to causality usually with what we do, unless we get these weird natural experiments. We can use correlations to generate a lot of insight that help us understand more about what kinds of causality is more likely. And I think that's probably the best we can do. And I think it's valuable. All right. So Shajan, I'm going to go back to you because I know you spend probably a lot of time thinking about this, particularly in terms of how you are helping others to understand at LinkedIn to understand what can be concluded and not be concluded from the analysis that you're doing. But again, getting back to this evolution, the, the way that the questions have been posed in, in the Q&A from the audience is, so there are all these challenges. What are you all doing from a data collection, data management, data analysis perspective, data interpretation perspective? 
that seems to be pushing the needle ahead, that you're in a better place now than you were in the past. So can you pinpoint any things that you've done? And I think I always think of this as someone in the audience is probably getting nowhere in their company on this topic. And they want you to tell them what two or three things should they try if they want to gain some traction in understanding diversity, equity, inclusion in their workforce. For easy answer would be make good friends with your legal team at the company because that will help a lot. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I would say what so I know someone mentioned the uh, chat about KPIs. So for the first principles, so I'll stop our two things. But like, here's the first principle: we keep hearing that if you can't measure anything, you can't improve it. Mm-hmm. And the fallacy of that is you say, well, we can't measure so many things in diversity, and let's not even treat it. Right? And I think, I think that is something you have to start off with, that not everything needs to be boiled down to a KPI. Right? You have to figure out like, whether it's sentiment or not, what are you measuring? Mm-hmm. I think to start, start it off, three things. One is uh, there's a lot of data literacy. We had to go through a year of data literacy just on diversity to get everyone on board and understand and use the same language. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that the entire organization would get it, you have to focus on who are the right people who are going to be the decision makers, get it. Because then to Carolyn's point, when you're going through promo discussions, when you're going through performance reviews, when you're making a hiring committee decision, is there a set who have that same language and they understand what bias is, what's not. And it's not done in a punitive manner. So I think that that's one. That common language, and it could be with your human resource business partners. If you're solving for hiring, then pick out your talent acquisition heads and few influential hiring managers to start off with. I think that is it. We spend that time with our executives as well. So, so that's part of education. That's a route you will take in any change management you will do in any business change, right? So that's number one, that education part. Not everyone, specific people, pick your battles. I think second is getting people comfortable with frequent, common like data. So whether it's headcount data, attrition data, uh, org shape, it is frequently presented to the same audience and they get to see a single source of truth so that they can trust and start to build their own correlations. Mm-hmm. Them building their own correlation is part of the game. It's okay. Let them build it because they'll come to you and say, I think this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Similarly on surveys as well, we frequently ask the same question so that it's consistent and people can see a trend mm-hmm. very high level, right? That, that's been key. And then the third is once you've done these two, you know, analytics of any kind, the best practices is any analytics that gets you a result, <laughs> that gets you action and decision-making. <laughs> so whether you use Excel or you use an AI model, all matters is within that pick out what's the biggest roadblock right now for the organization and the powers to be that they are really emotionally resonating with. If you can pick that and try to solve that with showing some impact, I think that one project sort of will be your beachhead. That gets things going. Thing is, a lot of the time in this space, we dilute everything by analysis and so much discussions that nothing actually happens. So pick one or two of so the, the, I would say, the focus on whether it's few ethnicities or whether it's gender. Pick that and solve a problem. That will get the ball rolling on everyone getting comfortable with the use of data for action. So I think this is a perfect segue to Carolyn. I was just thinking about this DEI report again and one of our big lessons learned. So there were companies, there were three companies that ended up participating in um, one aspect of our data collection in this Wharton-sponsored DEI study. And what we had to do was not only show them all the data, which 
you know, wasn't super surprising to me that we found racial and gender differences um, in these comp in, in the experiences of people in these companies. And then because we were looking at outcomes, we were able to see, or sorry, at practices, we were able to see which practices we wanted to improve everybody's experiences, which practices should be put in place. So what was neat about that project is we already had an automatic entry into this conversation, Shujat, around tell them not just that everybody is sad at your company, tell them what they should be doing if they want to improve it. So when you do a project that is looking at outcomes on or practices on outcomes, you naturally have some of that. That said, there's such a thing called overload. Um, and I think you're getting us to that a bit is, although there are a million things, let's just exaggerate for a moment, that might possibly be able to help improve people's experiences in your workplace. If you tell leaders, what this is my experience shows me, that here are the 50 things that you should be doing, they receive that information a little bit less, um, they're less likely to receive that information, I think, in the way that you might want them to than if you tell them start with these three. Carolyn, I'm going to move to you because you have this extensive, extensive survey that companies fill out. I think it's well over 200 questions. And as part of your relationship with companies that complete your survey, um, you don't just tell them everything, like you don't just feed their data back to them. You suggest to them what they should be focusing on. So how do you make the decisions around helping them to understand where to focus their energies, knowing that if you told them to improve all the 50 areas that they're behind in, they might run the other direction. So that's actually reflective of a, a question from the audience as well. I think, um, Stephanie, it really just starts with, um, you have to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that you're having these conversations um, to Shajat's point at the right level. Because when we talk about how people feel, they're not going to tell their manager who deals in their, you know, Zoom meetings <laughs> um, on a daily basis with a level of bias that if somebody in HR was on the line, they would be fired instantly. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that we're having these conversations at the right level um, and that we have to make sure that we're telling organizations what they can fix that they actually can do right at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, you can't tell somebody, oh, you know, knock them over the head with the number one spot everybody's interest is not being number one on our list. Some organizations just want to get better. Um, some chief diversity officers who have great relationships with their CEOs or US leads really just want to show their workforce that they do believe all people are created equally, that they do believe if given the same resources, everybody can compete and win and help the organization be more competitive. And so um, the benchmarking report that we uh, do with leaders and also just the report card that you get for free. It really does show you, not based on opinion, <laughs> but it is data-driven. Um, it is statistically validated. This is what best-in-class is doing. And this is these are the opportunities that you have. Now, it's on the organization. We're not consultants. We're not implementation specialists. We don't do any of that. We are just a mirror and we are the record of truth on this topic. Absolutely. Okay, I've got a follow-up question for you. Um, that uh, there's a, a person in the audience who wants to understand, do you, when you deliver insights, when you think about the insights that you're creating, mm -hmm. are you breaking, are you analyzing your data based on industry? And if so, are there differences that you can share around which 
companies seem to be better, is usually how it's phrased, than others on these various dimensions. Yeah, so um, before we go into the final um, process of ranking companies, we do normalize based on industry um, talent pool availability. So we do that before um, we, we go through the process. And if you look at our list, you know, diversity.com, it's right there on the homepage. Um, if you look at the Hall of Fame, um, you'll notice, folks, there, there is a diversity of industry there. So this is about intentionality more than it is just about an industry who has been doing it longer than another and got it right. And, and I would just want to make one point about trust. Mm -hmm. I love the, the conversation or the narrative that is going on right now where people are showing that they really do have a choice of where they're going to work, a choice of where they will invest, and a choice around what they will purchase. And so rather than answering my question, don't tell me what to focus on. If you value me and my contribution, answer my question. And I love that bringing that full circle. That's really what this whole conversation around data transparency is about. Mm -hmm. If AT&T, if PricewaterhouseCoopers, if EY, if KPMG, if Hilton, if Novartis Pharmaceutical Companies, and all the other companies that participate in our competition can disclose this data, if MasterCard can do it, why can't other organizations? What is the problem? They've shown you the roadmap. Majority of them have inter, you know, um, uh, relate relationships because they say they're other organizations. Their CEOs went to school together. A lot of them probably went to Wharton. So, <laughs> so my point is, if you really want to do this work, there's a roadmap. What there isn't is an excuse any longer. Yeah. So I'm going to make. So Shujat didn't say this, but I'm going to say this based on something he said. Is I don't think that they've made friends with their. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that they've made friends with their legal teams because that to me, in my experience as an academic, yeah. there are legal teams that are deeply allergic yeah. to disclosing any data about their company. Yeah. Um, now I will say this. I was once told by a, both a CEO and a board chair that the, the general counsel doesn't run the company. CEOs do. That part. That was a company that actually releases data. So yes, it depends on the relationship with legal, but sometimes as I've done, at least on one occasion, when you have a relationship with a high level executive in the company, that to me was a lever to get the legal team to stop changing my survey in ways that would no longer be valid academically. So there is this, tension around, um, you know, liability, Shajat, you use that word, but also if we're only concerned about being sued, then how are we ever going to change our workplace culture? Um, and I think that that's sometimes, Kelly, I'll come back to you, there's sometimes that's what the CEO or the board chair is able to say, that when you don't have influence, you can't help um, make that apparent. Yes, Carolyn. Um, and I just wanted to add to that because you also asked um, about, um, you know, how, how we get companies comfortable with this conversation. Um, and that is by not taking our word for it, but making connections. Yes. So for the Diversity in Top 50 competition, we have webinars where um, the chief legal officer at a company that is in the top 10 will talk about how they navigate, um, you know, um, first of all, understanding the intent of the question. Um, and then pulling together the data, but knowing that Diversity Inc. has been doing this for you know, many years and um, a court hasn't even been able to um, compel us to release data. So um, there's a relationship there. And then Stephanie, that's how we do it. 
how can the business world and um, academia and even nonprofits work together by transferring those trusting relationships, by making those introductions, but most importantly, putting the how-tos out there in a, how does Joe Madison say it, uh, where the goats can get it kind of way. And so I think that's really how we do this. It's a heavy lift. We have to do it together. And you just start with showing how others who have done it successfully, um, what their path was. So I'm going to give each of you, we're coming down to our final four minutes, and this has been a wonderful conversation. And, you know, it's one of these things, it's just why I keep bringing up this theme every year in this speaker series. But I think certainly why I think Diversity Inc. continues to do the work that you do, Carolyn, and you continue to show up. And I know this is not the first conversation you've had on this topic. So thank you for being here tonight to have yet again another conversation about it. You should jot, I know that you're doing this deep work at LinkedIn, but you're also continuing to put yourself into various spaces, including my war in classroom on Wednesday to continue the conversation and Matthew through the People Analytics Initiative, but also through your own teaching in People Analytics and your academic research, you're continuing this conversation. So even though we're doing this one thing tonight through this series, there are many extensions. I just want to give each of you about, you know, a minute or so to just give us your final thoughts on this topic. And, and certainly I always like to be optimistic because I think for myself, as well as many of us here tonight, we've been at this a while. Either our respective conversations on people or, or at the intersection or on you know diversity more broadly. Um, what is it that you want us to think about when we're thinking about diversity analytics in the future of this space going forward? Matthew. I mean, I think there was a there was a question in the chat about new data. Um, you know, I think obviously we need to continue doing well what we're already doing. I think thinking of new ways to understand um, diversity. I mean, something we haven't talked about is a lot of organizations now are thinking about networks and network data, looking at Slack channels, looking at um, email, all of those sorts of things. We worry about engagement. We worry about inclusivity. I think that is a great resource that, you know, as we go forward, we can use to really understand, you know, who's at the center of networks and why. Thank you, Matthew. Shajat, closing words? Yeah, I'll plus one to Matthew. When I say behavior, that's uh, organizational network an analytics as part of the behavioral analytics we're doing as well that we dive into. Um, I would say two things. Like one is, uh, so two categories that we should look at. So one is managers. So everything around managers, right? So uh, you can be a single black or a Hispanic or Asian person, but you may be the only person on your team and will always get hidden. It's the manager who creates inclusivity, belonging, he or she, and then it goes up from the leaders. So the more you can study managers and help them understand their behaviors, because that's where you can share data, get data, and you can get some buy-in as well directly from them. Show them the mirror. And there's a lot of technologies and things we're working on as well that can show a mirror. And second thing is the team. If you have to move beyond and say, what's a team metric for diversity, inclusion, and belonging? Uh, because, and I think, Stephanie, maybe I think you did this work as well. You can have the most diverse-looking team, but if the decision rights are not shared and they're not inclusive, there's no point having a diverse representation on the team. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the analytics has to get to is team-based metrics, team-based, and that's where organizational network analytics comes in as well. And then you can tie it to business outcomes because at the end of the day, it's a team's business outcome. You will tie diversity, inclusion, and belonging to. So I think that that's where it's headed. That's where it needs to be as well. Thank you. Carolyn, final thoughts? 
Yes. Um, I, I just want to say that, um, you know, this, this is, this work is, is not for the faint at heart. Um, because Nia asked in the chat, she says, you know, as the mirrors and records of truth, how often do company leaders show anger, opposition, or distrust? Um, if your, if their diversity number, if what you're reporting out about their diversity numbers, you don't, they don't like. And the answer is, if they like you, you're not doing your job because even the best companies have a long way to go. Every person, including me and every person on this chat, on this panel, has, we have biases and that's just what it is. And so uh, it's a heavy lift, as I said before, we have to do the work together. But if we keep doing this, I think we'll get there much faster um, than when we try to do it alone. And I think to that point is, you know, we're not in this business to, whether in academic business or corporate business, to make companies feel better about what they're doing. We're here to help them do a better job <laughs> um, by the people who they represent and, and, and who depend on them, right? So sometimes you just have to be okay, like most of the time, to be the bearer of bad news because that's the only way they effectively change. With that, it is time to wrap up our discussion. I want to thank Matthew, Carolyn, and Shajat for sharing your insights and your expertise. Uh, this definitely, for me, I always learn something from each and every one of you, but tonight I'm, I'm going to go to bed feeling very full with new insights and more motivation to go tell some others some news that they don't want to hear tomorrow with the hopes of helping them to do better in the future. I also want to acknowledge that um, this is my last time hosting the Leading Diversity at Wharton Lecture Series. However, I am continuing to host the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is a more abbreviated version, um, also bringing together leading academic and thought experts on contemporary DEI issues. So looking forward to um, engaging you all through that channel as well. So I want to thank you all for attending tonight, for joining us this evening, for submitting all of these wonderful questions. There were so many, but I do feel like we got at the heart of, of those that were submitted. Um, I hope you all have found it to be as fascinating a conversation as I have tonight. Uh, take care, everyone. Good night. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.